What does Colgate mean by live life to the brightest? Could it be a rich glass of red sipped inside a Parisian cafe on a snowy night when my gaze is met by a tall, mysterious... <coughs> I mean, brushing is directed with Colgate Optic White Pro Series Toothpaste gives you a visibly whiter smile in just three days so you can live life to the brightest and finish that glass without worrying about teeth stains. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. We have to go back. We have to go back now. She's right. I, I really don't know how much more right she has to be. Okay. And I agree with you. We should go back. Good. Okay, great. There we go. Okay, so the three of us can just Hold pack on a up minute. Our... Hold on. We should go back. Yes, but it took us, what, six days to get here? More like 12 months, Natalie Portman, but I understand it's hard to keep track of time in the shimmer. Portman there in Alex Garland's Annihilation, one of the most acclaimed films from the first half of 2018, and still a movie that a lot of people are talking about as one of the year's best. Annihilation, not a film that came up last week on part one of our top 10 films of 2018 countdown. This week, it's part two. Joining us again, Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune and Tasha Robinson from TheVerge.com and The Next Picture Show podcast. We'll talk about films from veterans Spike Lee, Alfonso Cuaron, Paul Schrader, and from a couple of newcomers. Plus, we get to our number one films of the year. All that and more. Hey, Adam, Annihilation's Nightmare Bear? Yeah. Best movie manimal ever. Ahead on Film Spotting. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. You are listening to Film Spotting, and this is part two of our top 10 films of 2018 roundtable. We are very excited to welcome back to the show from the Chicago Tribune, Michael Phillips. Hello. Hello, Michael. Hi. And also from TheVerge.com and the Next Picture Show podcast, Tasha Robinson is back with us. How are you, Tasha? Doing just fine. You guys look like you haven't aged a day. <laughs> it's always a relief <laughs> when they return. It you is. Know it's that good, we didn't right? scare them away. <laughs> well... You know, we had to restrain them slightly, but they are here and we are excited to dive into the 10 films that, because we couldn't come up with a better term for it, we are going to call our consensus picks, even though you're going to find in a few cases, there isn't really consensus. Part one of the countdown, which was last week, we focused on the movies that were mostly unique to our individual top 10 lists. We're going to recap those quickly if you missed that episode. And it turns out, Tasha, you were the big winner. As far as individuality, you had six movies that were part of that outlier show. Only one of these six titles did another person share 
on their top 10. Why don't you share don't, those? I don't like sharing, Adam, but I'm going to share these with your listeners. <laughs> okay. I had Gareth Evans' Apostle at number nine, Marrowbone at number eight, mid-90s, Jonah Hill's directorial debut at number seven, Bad Times at the El Royale, Drew Goddard, number five, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse at number four, and Death of Stalin at number two. Josh, second place as far as some unique choices. You had five of them. I did, including Zama from Argentine director Lucrecia Martel, Leave No Trace from Deborah Granick, and then a very, very, very small experimental documentary from first-time filmmaker Ramel Ross called Hale County this morning, this evening. The other two on my list were Game Night and Private Life. Michael, we had three picks from you on part one of this countdown, including Black Panther, number yep, 10. Number 10, and Zama at number nine, along with Josh there. And uh, Can You Ever Forgive Me, my number three this year. Can You Ever Forgive Me was my number nine. I have by far the most boring list. I didn't have a single movie that was completely unique to me. I hmm. probably shouldn't even be here. What's the point? You are a I could cr- leave. You are a cross-section of the American public. I guess so. <laughs> I recommend I guess making so. up movies. There you go. The Death of Stalin was the other choice of mine that came up on the last episode. It was my number 10 film of the year. As you said, Tasha, your number two. If you want to look at those full lists, you can find them at filmspotting.net. And if you did miss part one of our top 10 countdown, you can find it at filmspotting.net or on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. This week, as I said, it is our consensus picks. These are all movies that made at least two of our lists, and we will get to our number one films of the year, which was not a consensus. We all have different picks for that top spot. That's where you're going to let your freak flag fly, Adam. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's going to shock everyone when they hear (laughs) my number one film of the year. We do have our opening salvo, though, just as we did last show. This time, we're not thinking about the movies that may be forgotten that we want to shine a light on, but your most memorable movie-going experience from 2018. It could be seeing a 2018 film or it could be seeing any film in the year 2018. Michael, we'll start with you. Mm, I'd have to go with seeing Widows, which is in my top 10, uh, at the Toronto International Film Festival. And just the relief, you know, sort of in general, of feeling like, oh, this thing is, is working for me anyway. It's working. And then specifically that shot, which is a lot of people's sort of signature favorite shot of the film with, with the cameras, a fixed camera on the car hood is Colin Farrell is this completely unscrupulous Chicago politician is driving from this exploitative photo op in a vacant lot in one part of his district ward. And in, after 90 seconds, the neighbor in the camera just sits there tracking the action. We hear the conversation. We don't see it because of the reflection on the, on the windshield. And the neighborhood gets better and better and better and drops him off in a Hyde Park brownstone that uh, nobody he just talked to 90 seconds earlier could possibly right. imagine a and just, just, I just the feeling of like this sort of like it's a, a smile kind of going on your face of like this is a this idea yes. is actually a great cinematic idea. It tells the story. I don't know. I just really I, and and to hear it working for a big audience at a big festival was it was a gas. Yeah, Tasha, what about you? So I told you we'd be bringing Hereditary back just briefly this time around. My runner-up for most memorable movie experience was around this time last year when I saw Hereditary for the first time at Sundance in a gigantic auditorium literally built into a gym. Uh, We were all sitting in like bleacher-style seating and just listening to that entire huge crowd of people all breathing in unison, holding the breath in unison. And then uh, at one particular moment, just a little mouth click noise at a a certain quiet moment in the film, (laughs) screams, including the lady behind me 
full-on <laughs> scream queen screech of terror. <laughs> I love that experience with horror films where just everybody's on the same page, and it, it's something you can only get in theaters. But by far, my best experience in uh, in 2018 with a movie was showing a whole bunch of my friends the Brian Taylor movie Mom and Dad with Selma Blair and Nicolas Cage oh, wow. as parents trying to murder their children after a, a strange, unexplained, M. Night Shyamalan-like, the happening experience suddenly causes all parents to want to murder their children. This movie is ridiculous. It's over the top. It's one of those full-on, bat-poop-crazy Nicolas Cage performances that you think of when you think of Nick Cage performances. And having already seen this movie and having given my friends only the minimal amount of information about what to expect, watching them watch this movie was so much fun. I cannot recommend this enough. If you're <laughs> if you're the kind of person who likes a collective, like low-key drinking and watching your friends laugh experience, and you have friends that like cinema, because this thing goes to some weird, like 70s affect kind of places, in addition to very modern, like small, small-scale horror movie places, in addition to over-the-top, just watch Nicolas Cage flail places. It is a fun group experience. Hmm. Both of those remind me of a movie-going experience that I wasn't really watching the movie, but when my teenage daughter brought friends home to watch Hereditary upstairs in the office and Debbie and I were downstairs doing something else, every scream I knew exactly because I knew, <laughs> I knew when they started it, I knew exactly where the they were. the time code there. Yeah, right? essentially in my head. That was fun. But the one I'm going to pick, a memorable movie experience I'd like to forget. I did it to myself, so I can only blame myself, but... I'm going to have to say going to see Happy Time Murders. I mean, that one's going to it's going to stick with me for a while. So it's a little sticky. Well, I don't have a 2018 pick because I either watched most 2018 movies sitting on my couch or sitting next to Josh. And that's completely uneventful. So I'm going to scream during. Hereditary. No, he, we didn't see that one together. Try, or, I try to grab him. For you never support, know. And he's just always shoving me off. But I've got two real quick ones that both involve my kids, starting with the 70 millimeter film festival at the Music Box mm. here earlier this summer. And no, it's not seeing Lawrence of Arabia with no air conditioning to get the full effect <laughs> of the desert sun. It's seeing Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade with a packed enthusiastic house, the type of house that's clapping when Harrison Ford's face first appears on screen, getting punched on that ship out at sea, booing the Nazis. I had my three oldest kids, including Quinn. He's 11. He was the only one who hadn't seen it before, just in heaven. And one of the moments of comedy in that movie, and I love the comedy of that film, but there was the one moment that I think a lot of people rip on, and I thought was a bad comedic moment as well, which is the moment where Hitler signs yeah. the diary, where Indy turns and Hitler grabs the diary and signs it and hands it back to him. But I will never forget the stunned look of joy and then the laugh that ensued on Quinn's face. And now I think that moment is pure gold and absolutely <laughs> belongs in that film. The other one would be delivering on my promise to Ethan Hawke here in studio, where I said I was going to watch Before Sunrise with my 14-year-old daughter, Sophie, and her loving it so much that a couple weeks later, when she went to spend the night at a friend's house, she borrowed the DVD and brought it and came back. She made the friend watch it. And she was so relieved to tell me that she could continue being friends with the girl <laughs> because oh. the girl also really loved Before Sunrise. Excellent. So Excellent. so she's out there proselytizing, spreading the word for the Before <laughs> trilogy. Those are my two favorite movie experiences of the year. And now we get back into our countdown as we talk about some of the best films of 2018. This is our first consensus pick. 
play them cards, Fancy Dan. Can't no one compel another man to engage in recreation. Certainly not a son of a gun as ill-humored as yourself. And as for names, my horse is Dan. I'm Buster. Buster Scruggs. Buster Scruggs? The run from Riata Pass? And this pistol. Clancy Brown with Tim Blake Nelson in the Cone Brothers, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Now, I said this was the consensus part of the show, but it turns out things don't always match up perfectly. We have a dissenter here. And rather than let Tasha rave on about why The Ballad of Buster Scruggs is her number six film of the year or me explain why it's my number six film of the year, Michael's going to tell us why we're crazy. Well, you're not. It's it's just more it's just more sad than crazy that you would I mean it's just such minor Cohen brothers stuff I think uh. and I think in talk, you know Joel I've, I've quoted this before but Joel Joel Cohen always says the directing is tone management and I, I that's why I was I was doubly surprised to find the six vignettes that make up this picture it, it just totally screwy i mean they're all trying different things and they do veer you know just honestly from you know very very broad very violent slapstick to much more serial comic pathos and you know you can take it or leave it and i and i think they uh they wanted to make the movie they made and they had the freedom to do it thanks to netflix but i i just found this thing kind of a nothing you know, hmm. and I and I find this this whole premise a nothing that you would pick it, and uh, <laughs> I, I think I'm actually walking out. <laughs> oh boy, Tasha. Then I guess the the floor is ours. I don't know. I mean, when you say ah, oh, the Coen Brothers had the opportunity to make the movie they made, and they made it. Like I'm I'm sold. I'm right in there. Like that. You you just you just told me that you, there's an experience that I'm going to enjoy. Well, what's your least favorite Coen Brothers movie? <sighs> oh gosh, uh, probably um, the Tom Hanks uh, the the, the, lady, the killers. lady Killers. Yeah, the Lady Killers. Yeah, yeah. the Lady Killers. That is a movie that I found to be a, an unmemorable. That nothing. was rough. Yeah, that was rough going. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, Buster Scruggs, I I completely agree with you about the tone being all over the place. For me, that's where some of the, the entertaining surprise came from, because the place that a story started in was not necessarily going to be related to the place that the story ended up in. So there was there were a lot of, of sudden left turns in that film. Because it's sold as a series of vignettes, I guess, uh, I didn't go into any of them like like expecting, strongly expecting some particular tone, some particular satisfaction. I was willing to just like ride the mine cart wherever it went down <laughs> into that dark tunnel. And like your bonus points for a, for a historically accurate simile there. Prospectors, mules. How do I get mules into this for Michael? I just found it to be uh, a series of, of interesting surprises that were, were beautifully shot, involved some of my favorite people um, and some people that I don't often get to see on screen that are always enjoyable, like Tom Waits, for instance. I thought it was just beautifully shot, beautifully made. I have yeah. heard so many complaints about the the Bruno Delanel uh, cinematography. I don't. Well, I, I wouldn't have any complaints about the cinematography. Well, I think there's something seem... distinct about it that is one of the reservations I had. I'll probably split the difference here. I like the film, but I'm not as wild about it as you are, Tasha and Adam. But I do think there was something about the digital cinematography, obviously purposeful, but that lent it almost a too pristine, clear 
um, cartoonish quality in some instances that I do think is distinct from some of the other the way some of their other films. But don't you think have you looked. notice it the most in probably the Tom Waits Prospector sequence? And that whole thing is almost setting up this idealistic. Yeah, that's Eden. supposed to be like a, a Bambi slash right. Looney Tunes. Right. Sure, and you're right. It, it does show up the most there. I think the Buster Scruggs segment it shows up. But for me, and I mentioned this in our review, that's why Meal Ticket was my favorite, is because you get a richness to the cinematography there that matches the rich dourness of that story, the committed dourness. So I, I do understand that complaint, I'll say. I guess I just don't see the point of complaining that something is shot in a way that, that makes it feel too cartoony when you have uh, somebody literally getting shot, growing animated wings, flying off in the <laughs> sky, <laughs> singing, yeah, playing a harp. Totally yeah. what they're going for. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. As grim as some of the segments might be, as gratuitous or I suppose cartoonish in that first one, certainly as some of the violence is occasionally. Michael, I just can't imagine. I really can't because that's how much I love this movie. Huh. I can't imagine not being swept up in the pure craft of Buster Scruggs. Tasha touched on it. The cinematography, the production design, the writing, the editing, uh, whoa, the whoa, Carter Burwell score. Hold it right there with the writing. I, the writing that, I mean, some of the most memorable, funny lines no, of dialogue no, no, of no. the year. And also <laughs> diving into all the usual really are, deep, are you, profound Coen Brothers themes. Are you mixing it up with another Netflix uh, title? I might or? be. <laughs> I might be. But those performances, too, across the board, from a bunch of faces that I don't know. Some I do, but so many I don't. And they were welcome surprises every time they came on screen. Every Tom Waits grunt, that's a face I'm familiar with. But how about, you mentioned Meal Ticket, Josh, that haunted face of Harry Melling, the subtle shifts in his character's performance on stage, and then the desperation that starts to creep in those eyes off stage as those audiences dwindle. I could watch Meal Ticket every day. That's mm. how much I love it. I, I really, really, that's the standout one for me, along with obviously the the fifth one, which I think is a favorite of a lot of people, the most romantic, the longest of the yeah. six involving the Zoe Kazan. Yeah, that's the best one. That's the best one. Yeah, it's the most tragic too, but I, I kind of love all six yeah. of them. No, wait, have you seen Meal Ticket yet today? No. Are, well, I, I, sk- gonna... I skip breakfast. I watch that, Meal Ticket. That okay. would be a heavy load, Meal Ticket, on a daily basis. I mean, that <laughs> right. one really... Well, I'm oof. just worried that if you haven't seen it, we're going to be forced to watch it now. Or, or no. We might have to take okay, a little break right, and right. watch it. I'm going to force you okay. to watch it. Okay, no, let's move on right. to some more picks and a special guest pick or two. We're going to hear from our friend Dave Chen and Aisha Harris, a senior culture writer at the New York Times and former host of the Represent podcast. Hey, Adam and Josh. This year was, I think, a really great one for movies. I could easily rattle off a long list of titles that moved and challenged me in ways I didn't expect and that featured brilliant performances, showcased unique filmmaking perspectives. So it's a really tough call, and maybe it's because I've seen it very recently, but my favorite movie of the year is The Favorite. Everything about this film has really stuck with me. The brilliant battle of wits and affection between Queen Anne, Sarah, and Abigail. The incredible performances by Olivia Coleman, Rachel Weisz, and Emma Stone. And I really loved how I never quite knew what was going to happen from scene to scene. Yet in each moment, every character's motivations and desires were crystal clear. Plus, it was just plain funny, as if screenwriters Deborah Davis and Tony McNamara were channeling Oscar Wilde. Thanks for all you do, guys, and Happy New Year. Hey, Film Spotting. David Chen here from the Slash Filmcast, and my favorite film of 2018 is Yorgos Lanthimos's The Favorite. This film features three of the best performances of the year from its main leads, and it uses language wonderfully in its depiction of Shakespearean palace intrigue gone awry. Yorgos Lanthimos' affection for wide-angle lenses and haunting scores creates some unsettling and memorable juxtapositions, making the film's backdrops as memorable as its characters. All in all, I was blown away, can't wait to see it again, and would recommend it highly. 
Thanks, and keep up the great work. Thanks to Aisha and Dave. Great pick there, going with the favorite, a movie I did love this year but just missed my top 10. Michael, it's on your list, quite high, number four. Oh, I'm crazy about it. And I am cra- and I defend it against a lot of people who really resented the uh, recommendation. <laughs> it's it's really nasty in, in, a, in the spirit of restoration comedy, which is not revived much anymore on stages. And it's just a, I, it's a wonderful reminder that a director is distinct, visually distinctive and kind of uh, loyal to a certain visual strategies from other films, Yorgos Lanthimos, can learn a new filmic language uh, that actually complements what he's done in the past. So that really, in a way, like Steve McQueen and Widows, you're getting a really cracked director rework a style to kind of fit new new material. I, I love it. And it's really heartless and nasty and it's got a slow motion duck race. <laughs> I can't I can't say enough good about it. I love it. And Tasha, I know that you love it as well. I did. I put it on my list of number three. Lanthimos's penchant for creating these these worlds, these hermetically sealed worlds with rigid rules, and then looking at characters trying to break those rules or trying to use them to their advantage is uh, it seems like a theme in his work that took me a while to understand. And each new film of his makes me appreciate his previous films better. Hmm. When I saw Dogtooth, I didn't know what to make of it. I didn't know what I was watching. And particularly at the end, I, I just walked away very unsatisfied. But as I see more and more of his movies, each one of them is unique and distinctive. Each one of them tells a very different story in a different place. But the more I watch them, the more I realize they're all kind of telling a similar story. You know, the lobster and killing of a sacred deer have very little in common until you look at that structure of what are the rules of this world and how can I escape the Mm -hmm. rules of this world. And The Favorite takes all of that and maps it on top of what could be a very familiar drawing room competition story about a a cat fight between a bunch of women vying for power and favor. And it turns it into something so formalist in structure and just so, I use the word immaculate too much, but it's just immaculately crafted. It's beautiful visually. The performances are tremendous, but it's also just, it's so well constructed to deal with those themes that he loves in yet another way. He hasn't explored them before. You know, what's so great about the favorite is because of this costume drama setting is I have had a handful of people say to me that they went to it, loved it. And these are people I never imagined would have seen a Yorgos Lanthimos movie. And I think it's, <laughs> it's struck, his most accessible. Well, and it, but, but it's also his, yeah, as, as you two doubt. have both pointed out. So I, I just love that, that there's a, a new audience being exposed to a very prickly filmmaker in a way that um, they can appreciate that doesn't sand him down. Yeah. And thinking about this after talking on the last show about the death of Stalin, both comedies, both involving power, obviously, and the one difference, and maybe why this movie goes a little bit deeper and isn't just about the comedy, it gets back to what Aisha said, which is the motivations of the characters. The death of Stalin really is about three men who are all just vying for power. And as I said then, there's nothing redeeming about them or their situations whatsoever. You may have to look hard to find the redemption in the characters played by Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz and even the queen, Olivia Coleman. but it's there. There are elements to each one of those characters where you understand what's driving them, and it's not just that they want to be in control. And I think that's what kind of elevates the favorite for me, in addition to Lanthimos and his really keen visual eye. So lots of love for the favorite. In fact, we're going to get a little bit more love for the favorite as we transition in to our next pick, let's hear from Amy Nicholson. 
Happy holidays, guys. Film critic Amy Nicholson here from Unspooled, and my favorite film of the year is The Favorite. I love Yorgos Lanthimos. I just think he's this director who has brilliant, cold, cutting ideas that make us <laughs> reflective on things that we don't really like about ourselves. Maybe that's a little too real. But The Favorite is the first movie I've seen where he's not just done that, been the brilliant ideas guy, but he's put those ideas to life in amazing, amazing, rich performances, characters, everything. I love The Favorite. I think it is so exciting to be watching movies when Yorgos Lanthimos is around and making new cool stuff every year. And I hope we get to say that soon about my runner-up, which is Boots Riley, Sorry to Bother You. I saw that film at Sundance. It just blew me away. It's always stayed at the top of my list. Guys, I think we have really awesome filmmakers right now, and it's so exciting. I can't wait till we talk about this class the way we talk about the class of the 70s. Amy, of course, also hosted the really great Halloween Unmasked podcast that The Ringer put out this fall. If you missed that, by all means, catch up with it. But yeah, the runner-up she mentions there at the end, sorry to bother you, it's my number four. Michael, I know it's on your list too. And wow, sorry to bother you. I just rewatched this a few days ago because I felt it either had a chance to cement itself or maybe even move up my top 10 list or possibly fall out of it entirely because this was such a crazy disarming experience the first time around. Well, here it is for me firmly at number four, what I would call an essential film for 2018. It's no secret, and I think everyone of every political stripe would agree on this, that things are supremely messed up, okay? The American experiment is sputtering, and we might all have different perceptions about why it's sputtering or what the answers might be to correct course. I don't even know that I'd necessarily agree with all the answers that writer-director Boots Riley offers in Sorry to Bother You, but I do know that this sci-fi satire, again, about an African-American telemarketer who's he's really trying to succeed in white America without really dying. It's the 2018 movie that's the angriest, it's the funniest, and it's the most provocative about the state of things. And it's willing to make us seriously reevaluate how we live together. So I think it's a movie that's thrillingly of the moment, had to be on my list after that second watch. Uh, Michael, how come it's on your oh, list? Cra- I mean, I love it. It's, it's and and I think the other thing is that I mean, this is a first-time feature filmmaker, and he has got such such mastery about just how he's going to activate this story, moment to moment, scene to scene. I have no idea what the collaboration really was like between this director and the cinematographer and the whole rest of the production team, but it, it just felt like an organic one-of-a-kind flower that just boing, you know, right right out of the ground. And it just, you know, a lot of people could not get anywhere near accessing the last 20 minutes where it takes, you know, the the very, (laughs) very hard right turn. Yeah, that's why I wanted to watch it again. Into the wiggiest kind of sci-fi. And But, you know, I love my son went to it separately and he's just turned 18 and he saw it in the summer. And, you know, that that's the film for him that maybe, say, 2001 was for me, you know, at a certain, you know, tender age where you see something you just haven't seen anything like it in your life. And you just respond to the kind of what a little bit of the message, a little bit of the just the the mixture of tones. I really hope more than more than almost any director we've talked about, uh, the Boots Riley continues to get the funding to make the movies he wants to make. Because I got a hunch that he's he's the one, you know, that'll that'll endure the longest. I hope. Hmm. I hope so. 
from the apes of the dawn of man to what the horsemen. Don't, don't I give mean, it away, Adam. It, it don't works. give it away. Well, it to, works. to the telemarketers. I'm thinking <laughs> more about go. the you know the, the apes to the telemarketers. <laughs> I mean, I'm not not equating telemarketers to apes. But, you know. <laughs> well, and I don't know if you really keyed in on it, but Lakeith Stanfield, just one of the most such a good idiosyncratic performance. oh. performances of the year. He's Tessa he's Thompson's a wonder. Great well, see, I wanted I mean, to single her out too because actually I think there are three sort of acting MVPs of the year, even though some of them are in smaller supporting turns. I mentioned Joaquin Phoenix, I think, on a recent episode where you look at what he does in Don't Worry, He Won't Get Far on Foot, very different from what he does in You Were Never Really Here, and very different from what he does in The Sisters Brothers. And I like all three of those films. Brian Tyree Henry in Atlanta on TV, then in If Beale Street Could Talk, Street, even though yeah. he's really in only one sequence, and Widows, he's the opponent to the Colin Farrell character, and Tessa Thompson, Creed Two, very good, Annihilation, and this picture, sorry to bother you, she elevates everything she's in. Yeah, and elevate is the word, because I will say another reason I wanted to revisit is that character she plays struck me the first time as a little bit symbolic, a little bit underwritten, and that's still there, but her performance and what she manages to do with that slightly thinly scripted character mm-hmm. does make it more forceful in the story than it otherwise would have been. She's great. Welcome, friends. Gather around. Form a semicircle. Tonight, we will have a transformative experience. In those containers, there are broken cell phones, used bullet casings, and water balloons filled with sheep's blood. Cell phones can only work with a mineral coltan, which is found in Africa's Congo. The prophet involved in this has created hardship and wars. I will stand here. If you feel so moved, you may throw the items in the containers at me. While I'm standing here, I will be reciting excerpts from the timeless Motown-produced movie entitled The Last Dragon. I will recite those lines that Angela says to Eddie Arcadian as she leaves him. Let's begin. Also, Boots Riley has mounted some really vigorous and and thoughtful and intelligent defenses of why that character is shaped the way it is. Often, you I mean, you have to judge a film by what's on the screen, no matter what the the filmmakers say about it. But he the way he talks about cinema and the way he talks about what went into the process of constructing this film, which he's been working on for a very long time, just really again elevates the material. It it makes it so obvious that this project is just is really thought through and meaningful to him and reading him about his project you know which he will defend passionately but respectfully he's maybe the only filmmaker i know right now that pays attention to what critics say and engages with them on a critical level on a it's interesting that you think that here's what i think rather than you know why are you why are you hitting me you're a jerk like all my all my followers should attack you now <laughs> kind of uh, kind of level he just he comes across as really smart and uh, like engaged and passionate about dissecting what makes art, which just makes the film all the better for me. Yeah, you see all of that in every frame of Sorry to Bother You. We are moving right along here to another consensus pick and another one where we have a guest voicemail. You're going to hear from Nathaniel Myers. He's an assistant professor of writing and rhetoric at Notre Dame University and Film spotting listeners may recall his appearance during our Vincent Minnelli marathon. I think he contributed some kind of setup question to every single film in that marathon. <laughs> did we ever pay him for that? Because um, he did a lot of work for us. Gas money, maybe, for driving from South Bend. And then he did actually appear yes. for our Best of the Minnelli Marathon Awards. Here is his favorite film of the year. 
Hey, film spotting. Nathaniel from South Bend here with my best film of 2018. I'm only hours away from having watched Roma, and I'm still reeling from it, and I could very easily see it inching to the top of my year-end list eventually. But at this current moment, I'm going to go with a much smaller film, one of two Golden Brick nominees, actually, that I've been wrangling with. And while The Rider is an absolute thing of beauty, I'm ultimately landing on Bing Liu's Minding the Gap. Minding the Gap is such a wonderfully unassuming film. It's primary posture is one of inquiry and sympathy, and it's a testament to Lou, I think, as a person, as a friend, as a son, that he's able to get such unguarded responses from his subjects. There are few moments more powerful this year in film for me than when Lou confesses to his friend Kira the motivation behind making the film, and Kira's expression is one of realization and understanding and, I would argue, gratitude. So what do you think you've gotten out of this documentary? It's almost like free therapy. <laughs> yeah. I'm making this film because I was physically disciplined by my stepfather. And it didn't make sense to me. And I saw myself in your own story. Hmm. Wow. That's... Wow, Bing. <laughs> I had no idea, dude. <laughs> That's really cool, though. It's also just incredibly intelligent filmmaking in its own right. There's obviously the exhilarating camera work of the guys on their skateboards, but also the smart editing, even just on a structural level, as it slowly peels back and reveals the darker corners of these boys' lives. I know at least one critic on Twitter recently expressed concern for how much understanding we should give to one particular character in the film and his actions. And I get that. But I also think it's important that Bing Lu himself isn't happy to let the issue go unaddressed. And for as much sympathy as he grants to others, he's also continually poking and prodding and interrogating. And I think it's that balance of sympathy and interrogation that ultimately gives this film its strength. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Professor Myers, for the insight. I think Nathaniel's absolutely right about Minding the Gap and about that scene with Kier in particular. I saw this movie months ago, but when I listened to this voicemail, I could picture that moment in my head so vividly because of how powerful it is. It's that side close-up and that smile we get from Kier, and then he just says, wow, when he hears what has been motivating Bing on this project. And it occurred to me, too, thinking about it, that it might just be another example of what Bing talked about in the Q&A I did with him at the Gene Siskel Film Center when this movie premiered here in Chicago, which is the way being behind a camera can empower and embolden you. It can push you towards discovery because that's a moment where Bing confesses to Kier that he was abused by his stepfather growing up. And Kier says, before, wow, he says, I had no idea. That's a hard thing to admit to anyone, especially if you've never talked about it before. It's just two guys hanging out. They don't necessarily share those kind of painful, intimate details. But having the camera there allows Bing, I think, a kind of shield to be that open and revealing with his friend. And Nathaniel mentioned sympathy. I think it's also an incredible moment of generosity because whether it was Bing's conscious decision or not, Kira's just gotten done sharing some of his pain. He's talking about the relationship with his father, the very difficult relationship he had with his father, who is now dead. And that's 
part of the problem is that he can't really reconcile that. And by telling Kier that he saw himself in his story, Bing is telling him that he's not alone, that he and his story have value. It helped inspire the entire project. It's helping Bing process his abuse. And I think that generosity, along with Bing's curiosity, is a big reason why this movie is so powerful. Tacit in what Bing is telling Kier about how his story influenced him is the fact that Minding the Gap as a movie, their stories being told together in this way might have that same impact, but on a much larger scale. Everyone who watches this movie who suffered similarly might end up seeing themselves reflected on the screen and maybe be able to process their own pain. The sequence, speaking of pain, the sequence here where all of the stories converge, where we get these kind of minor epiphany moments where everyone is being as open and honest in disclosing their pain and in some ways their guilt is absolutely a contender for my most moving moment of the year. It's also a contender for scene of the year. That's how good I thought it was. That's how good I think Minding the Gap is. So my number two, and I know it also made your list, Michael. Yeah, it's my number five. And it, it's my favorite documentary of the year. It's the most miraculous in, in that it works at all. Because because a, a movie that has this roughly a fourth of it uh, d- devoted to the filmmaker's own demons and own family story, how do you work that out in the editing and the shaping of this thing? Where you're, you're not just bigfooting other people's uh, painful revelations. You know, it's a, it's a, it's amazing to me. And there's there's nothing patronizing at all about his interrogation of his friends. You know, or his his kind of examining what it all meant when they were teenagers together. It's and it's also just real, honest to God cinema. You look at the first five minutes of this yeah. really, really stunning shots of just skateboarding around empty, desolate Rockford streets, probably on a Sunday morning or something. Uh, that paid off beautifully a second time, and that's that's always an indication that something's working. I watched this movie last night specifically because I knew you guys had it on your list, and I was so I'm I'm still feeling the emotional impact. I nearly turned it off about half an hour in because I. I kind of felt like I had already seen this movie done better in mid-90s, which explores a very similar culture. But while it it starts off by exploring this community of skaters in a way similar to to mid-90s, it just it keeps developing and it keeps growing and it's so surprising when it does. It's This was one of the biggest twists I think I've seen in a documentary this year outside of uh, Three Identical Strangers and it comes entirely because of, of the revelation of what this film is about. I feel like there's a lot of, of debate going on right now about toxic masculinity, you know, what it is and what the results are. And I think a lot of men in particular, when they hear that phrase, they say, oh, you know, feminist garbage, whatever, and their ears close. This movie is such a cool illustration of how a certain type of taught masculinity keeps men from being allowed to feel their own emotions or express their own emotions and how that particular kind of masculinity is harmful, as harmful or more harmful to men than, you know, anything that women have to put up with. And in this film, you get to see people struggling with it and trying to help each other past it. You get to watch them processing their own emotions and trying to share them with each other in just these very nascent ways. And it's it's incredibly moving and incredibly vulnerable and really beautiful. Yeah, your experience of watching Natasha is interesting because this really is a film. I had a very similar one. It just blossoms, suddenly just opens up and you realize you're watching, even if you had been enjoying what 
was being done before because the cinematography is wonderful. It opens up into something so much more. I like that Nathaniel described it as having a posture. You know, sometimes I like to think of movies as being their own living, breathing things separate from their makers even. And you can absolutely feel Minding the Gap sort of leaning in and just being so willing to to listen to its subjects. And, and I think that's why it's able to get to that level of depth. All right, for our next pick, we're going to hear from another guest, Christopher Harris, friend of the show and host of the Harris Fantasy Football Podcast. Hey, Adam and Josh, it's Chris Harris, currently in Los Angeles. My best picture of 2018 is Paul Schrader's First Reformed. I think it's valid to say in a year with a ton of new voices, perspectives, faces, are we really going back to alienated white dude on a quest for meaning? But Anyone worried this film is cliche or lazy or some kind of shorthand? This is smart and angry, and the ending is transcendent or transcendental. Faith and the environment, it's a serious movie. And when we look back on what it was like to be in 2018, I think First Reformed, maybe unfortunately, captures it best. Thanks for that, Chris. Great pick. I have First Reformed high up as well at number three. This, as a matter of fact, First Reformed is the first of three movies that made three lists among our panel here. And yeah, that ending at a rap party, we don't do a best ending category, Adam. That'd be a spoiler, obviously, but I'd probably have to give it to First Reformed for the provocative, ambiguous place that Schrader takes us. One of my favorite, more letterboxed pub here, but one of my favorite letterbox threads I had this year was when I just asked if the final moments of First Reformed, are they a vision of salvation or are they an act of damnation? How do I know this movie is great? Because I was convinced by almost all of the answers that came in. (laughs) They all sort of work and make me rethink things without undoing what I think Schrader was probably most interested in himself. There's space made there for all of us and all of our wrestling and all of our opinions and all of our wondering. So I know – Adam and Michael, you're with me. Yes. I got the vibe that Tasha's not. So I saw I her know, hand I go don't know up where we want to throw this part. one. Should we should we let Tasha in now and then kind of undercut all of what I've Let's just hear. said? Let's hear it. Let's hear it. Oh, no, no. I want to hear you guys praise that ending, which <laughs> I, would, I would put on a list of one of the worst endings of the year. Oh, oh I loathed the ending of that movie. And I... What, like while it did make me rethink everything that came before, it made me rethink it in a much more negative light. I will say this. I talked to Schrader when he came to town. Did anybody else hear? Yeah, we he did. was on the show you with did. us. Yeah. He was very pragmatic about trying different endings. I mean, he wasn't really, I believe it. He wasn't married yeah. to that ending in a way that, say, Boots Riley was determined not to give in to anybody. I think you can sense that. Yeah. And, it, and maybe that's – maybe it's that sort of carpentry that is a little clunky for you that it was like, yeah, well, it could have gone a different way. You had it where on your list, Michael? Well, it's, it's high up. It's, it's number seven for me. Yeah, seven. it's number okay. four for me. I do think Chris makes a compelling point. This isn't just alienated white dude material, but it's a movie made by an older alienated white dude filmmaker who's working in the style of Brisson and Dreyer. This, isn't, say, and this I mean, isn't so contemporary. And I got to say, the one thing it made me do is made me, made me question how blasé I can be sometimes about writing off a, a, a big talent. I mean, it's been a long time since Schrader made a movie that, for me, I guess in some sort of surface way held together or, you know, you know just it made some sort of dramatic sense to me. And this film 
even even if it is kind of a slavish homage to Brisson and especially Diary of a Country Priest, I yeah. think. Uh, Winter Light from Bergman yeah, in particular. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that it, it gave him the blueprint that maybe kind of kept him in line in some way, more purposefully telling this story. Uh, Ethan Hawke, not an actor I've ever really revered. Uh, and in fact, actively resisted for many years because he always seemed to be acting more than his co-stars in ways that sort of took away from the scene rather than added to it. I, here, it's like he's rediscovered, or maybe discovered for me for the first time, how to how to be completely effective on on screen for the first time. Yeah, I, mean, I was going to say where I agree with Chris is with the environmental concerns of the movie, but even maybe separate from those, and just the existential concerns of the movie, the uncertainty, the disillusionment, the questions about personal culpability in this chaotic unforgiving world that does feel i agree with him that does feel as relevant and timely as any other movie this year despite the form he's working in and maybe despite schrader himself and i think hawk at this point is the perfect age and temperament to play this character right now if you think about his most memorable characters he's always played seekers and that's what he is here still but now i think i mentioned this during our best of the year so far in july that if hawk does win an Academy Award for First Reformed as Best Actor. I hope the crease in his forehead gets Best Supporting Actor because it's just so grooved in there. It's like it's splitting him in half, which that character is essentially. I think if you get that forehead with Jesse Plemons' forehead, <laughs> yes, in the same film, a lot of forehead it'll talk be, this it'll year. Be, the, the medium will not be able to accommodate. So rap party every year, forehead of the year. Just, We're just I adding the category. We got to go there. So I want to hear more from Tasha though about this. That the ending made you look at uh, everything that came before for in a negative light. Does that mean negative terms that it it didn't work with what had come before or that you looked at the events negatively? You looked at the character negatively? I thought that this movie raised a lot of big, as as Adam says, uh, first environmental questions, then existentialist questions, questions that are relevant and, and meaningful and large, and, and then it answers them in that final shot in the most facile and predictable way possible. I, I think that it builds up attention, like an, an almost unbearable what will happen next tension, and then it deflates that in the most facile and boring way possible. Like what what happens in the end to me is just it's a nothing of a response. Okay. Well, we're maybe leave have it to there. Talk, talk more off air. We're going to leave it there because we don't want to spoil the ending and we have to get to more dissension from Tasha, just just throwing <laughs> gasoline on the fire here. And we're going to start off. This is so appropriate that we're going to get to this movie that you also didn't appreciate as much as the rest of us. And the person who's going to do the honors is the colleague you like to fight with the most over at the next picture show, Scott Tobias. Oh, Scott. Hi, film spotting family. It's Scott Tobias from the next picture show. My number one movie of the year is Roma by Alfonso Cuaron. I'm going to assume that you've spent the whole show talking about its overwhelming beauty and cinematic grandeur. So I'm going to use my time to go on a little rant. The three best experiences I had in movie theater this year are Roma, which is a Netflix movie, Mandy, which was released on VOD the same day it was released in theaters, and Annihilation, which completely skipped theaters altogether in countries other than the U.S., Canada, and China. I feel privileged and blessed to have had the opportunity to see all these films projected. In fact, Roma is coming to Music Box in Chicago in 70mm next month, but I also lament that so few others could have had that experience too. The sight and sound in Roma is so crucial in giving vibrancy to this time and place and turning the intimate into the emotionally epic. I hate the idea of theaters becoming irrelevant, and I cringe that people won't have the same pleasure that I did. 
In other words, I'm old and set in my ways. Thanks, gang. Have a great show. Roma, my number five. Josh, your number two. Michael Phillips, your number two. Right. So where's Tasha and then? Oh, it's it's just not on my list at all. All right, all right. Scott Tobias, wrong for America, wrong about America. <laughs> you know, I will say this. I will say that I have been more interested in the dissensions on Roma than with any other film uh, on my list yeah. this year. I just I I think there there is the the element that and the and the theme I'm reading among a lot of opinions about whether or not this is a pretty condescending or inadvertently patronizing look at the help, quote, the help. In a way, it's laid out more baldly in American movies like the help, you know, where, where, you know, where you're just kind of exploiting uh, maybe the labor and exploiting a character who may mean very much to the filmmaker uh, in ways that it just seems a little facile, a little cheap and kind of reduces her to, you know, you know a, a tragic element of a story rather than a person. I don't know. It, it's so damn interesting visually that I, I may I, I've been struggling with why it, it was not my number one you know and I was thinking well, now what's missing from this thing is it is it is it just that he likes to keep the people somewhat marginalized in his own unbelievably detailed frames you know that we lose that I did not have the the same emotional response that so many others did about being really profoundly moved by it uh, wiped out emotionally by the end I, I was kind of wiped out Aesthetically, which is a very different thing, yeah, and that's I was, why I, I, lo- I love the movie. Both. Wiped really? out both. Yeah, well, you, had you, it at number two. You cry, yeah, I'm a sucker for that sort <laughs> of stuff. <laughs> you yeah, cry. I think I started our review, didn't I, Adam? Asking that question, I can't imagine anything anyone possibly could have against Roma. We talked about try, tried to imagine what some of those objections well, might be. Let's, let's hear them. Let's and, hear them. Yeah, let's oh, a little I, bit my, more viewers, Tasha. My objections to Roma are not interesting or profound or strong. Like I, first reformed made me angry. Like we we watched that at the cabin in the woods, and it's probably good because there were no people within miles to hear me screaming at the screen. <laughs> Roma just didn't didn't connect with me. And I think in large part, it's because the emotional remove of the film, to me, like undermines a lot of it. There's just, there's so much of, of Cleo going through these profoundly emotional experiences with a completely straight face that, that doesn't let us in oh. on her emotions. Oh, it's such a great performance. My favorite female performance of the year. You think it's a you straight look face so throughout. Sad. And I'm I am incredibly more sad. On your face right <laughs> no, now no. than I saw on, on her, her face smile in that is scene. a weapon, Tasha, and she pulls it out at just the. If she were to overuse that, it would have completely undercut the film. I mean, the choices she makes of when to unleash that smile are crucial, or the tentative way she goes through that one doctor's appointment and is clearly uncomfortable about being in this social situation, being asked the questions she's asked and able to convey that discomfort subtly. I mean, I just think this is a shocking performance for a novice actor to pull off. It, uh, it, it just I, moved I, me incredibly. It, it made yeah, me make that leap, yeah. Michael, that you're talking about. I don't quite have the same... Uh, I think it's a very effective use of a non-professional. And, and that, that that probably sounds condescending and dismissive. And I think I, I also known it, as a good performance. You know, in the end, in the end, I think there's other. Uh, you know, this, this is what struck me about my number one and number two. But you know, my number one has a non-professional first-time uh, actor working in a narrative framework, more or less playing himself. But to me, that one had the emotional element and the kind of dimension that that Roma does lack for me. And I think that's why it's a limited 
excellent film, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is a paradox, I know. But but uh, d- uh, my question, Natasha, though, is did you see it big or small? Oh, did I you? saw it on the big screen. Okay. All right. So there you go. That, that's. I yeah. think ultimately all I really have to say about Roma is there are films that make me like angry and sickened and that I want people who appreciate the movie to have my experience instead. In this case, I want to have the experience everybody else is experiencing. Right. I, I do get that what's wrong with me feeling out of just seeing the, the huge love people have for Roma. I think it's much more likely that I'm wrong about this film, and maybe I need to see it three more times. Maybe maybe he, maybe he, Alfonso Cuaron's wrong. I just need to see it on the small screen, and then I'll appreciate it. I want to have that love of the film. Yeah, I get have. what you're saying. I get what you're saying. I'm certainly more with Josh in terms of the experience I had, and there were a couple of moments we didn't get to in our review that really stood out to me. And one of them's at the Hacienda when she's gone with the family out to this party. And there's a lot of other families there. And it's such a minor thing, but it just speaks to how invested I was in Cleo's story. I think one of the maids that runs that house brings her down to where they're having a little party, a little bit of revelry. And she actually entreats her to sit down and gives her a drink and tries to care for her in a moment and just give her a moment of rest. And this is something we have not seen anyone else do up to this point in the movie. And we know her situation. We know the struggle is only going to get worse. And before I think she even takes a sip of the drink, someone dancing bumps her and it spills and the glass breaks. And to me, it felt like an earthquake had happened. Like, honestly, just because I was so enjoying that moment of of relief for her and rest and comfort and that it's just shattered. Yeah, that's tied to what well, we did talk about, things like literal earthquakes yes. echoing the minor reverberations that's within it. the family. But I also want to say that a scene like that is the counter to the claims that this is an idealized depiction of a woman who was working for this family. I think there are elements of that. I'm okay with that, with someone remembering a woman who was so good to Mm -hmm. him and wanting to honor her. But these other moments, like the scene Adam just described, are where she gets her own inner life. And the movie makes conscious choices to spend time with her, apart from the family, outside of Quran's memory and gaze. These are things he would have had to have learned by some sort of research, interviewing the actual caretaker who is still living, and fill the film in with her life apart from that family so that it isn't idealized. It isn't just their employee who we're learning about. We're learning about that element of her life completely alongside all of these other elements of her life. Well, I also think Quran's in on the indictment, if that's the word to use, of this family. There's another moment that's a throwaway scene, but for me wasn't at all, where she's being checked into the hospital. And I think it's the grandmother who Mm -hmm. was actually doing the checking in. And they do what they do at hospitals when you check in. They ask a bunch of questions about the patient. And this is a family that would claim to truly care for this person, to truly have her best interests at heart, and would probably even say, we know her. Of course we know her. She's always been with us. And in that moment, they basically know her first name. Yep. That's it. The yeah. movie makes that very clear that they don't know her at all. There's even a tinier one where that grandmother says good morning to everyone, passes through to all the children, and just does not acknowledge Cleo at all. Yeah. She's just not in her mind at that time. I think there's growth in this family, but at that time, she's not worthy of that. All right. You've been hearing a lot from us. It's the listener's turn next, where we'll have the results of the film spotting poll asking for your favorite movie of 2018. Then we're down to our number one picks, a different title for each of us, believe it or not.
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back to Film Spotting. Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune and Tasha Robinson from The Verge. And the next picture show will rejoin us. We gave them a little break. Well, they organized. They got together, demanded water <laughs> this and is bathroom true. breaks. And I, we had to acquiesce. I mean, I suppose. <laughs> If these conditions are so hard to work under, we're going to plow ahead as we have some poll question results to get to. We are sharing, of course, our favorite films of 2018. We asked you a few weeks back to share your pick for the best film of the year. It's always hard when you have to narrow it down to a poll question, but we came up with, it looks like, nine options to consider. Cold from our takes on a lot of these films, but also from the movies that seem to be cropping up a lot on some of the favorite films of the year lists. Here are those options. Annihilation, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, Black Klansman, First Reformed, Hereditary, Isle of Dogs, Paddington, A Star is Born, or if you don't like any of those choices, you could go with other and write in your own candidate. Josh, how did it come out? A big pack bunched together here on the bottom, like one percentage point separating all of these. So A Star is Born, last place with 3%. The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, 4%. You Were Never Really Here, 5%. Hereditary at 6%. Isle of Dogs at 7 Paddington 2 with 8 Black Klansman with 9 And here, finally, we get a little separation. With 13% of the vote is Annihilation. With 17% of the vote, first reformed, but winning the poll was other, 30% of the vote. Some of the popular other answers were Roma, which actually got more write-in votes than A Star is Born, You Were Never Really Here, Buster Scruggs, and Hereditary. Sorry to Bother You was in the mix, Leave No Trace, The Writer, The Favorite, Minding the Gap, Eighth Grade, First Man, and Lee Chong Dong's Burning, which is a film Alex Goes went with. Burning Times 60. I think Alex literally wrote Burning 60 times. Lee's film has wormed its way into my brain, he says, in the best way possible. Some of my favorite scenes and moments of the year and an unsparing and unsettling ending. Willie Evans writes, maybe, just maybe, picking Paddington 2 as the best film of the year will finally legitimize it. It's a beautiful film that deserves to be taken seriously. Josh, champion of the marginalized and animated. I, I think you could put that on a business card or I like at least it. a t-shirt. I like it a lot. Lift up Paddington 2. Willie begs you, and I'm just going to say spoiler alert, you're going to let him down. Does putting it at number 12 of the year count as lifting up Paddington 2? It probably doesn't, right? It's got to it be in that Willie. top 10. Well, yeah. that's where I've got it, Willie. We also heard from John Kissel. Nothing's been able to top You Were Never Really Here for me this year. Lynn Ramsey's film has haunted me since I saw it in May. I've returned to Johnny Greenwood's aching score and often thought of the whiplash-inducing ending. To do some Kippenar-esque theme imposing on 2018. Love it. What's come up again and again in my favorites from this year, First Reformed, Eighth Grade, First Man, Lean on Pete, has been bone-deep despair. And Ramsey's latest masterpiece exemplifies how it sticks to a soul and how it radiates out into the world. <sighs> That's deep stuff. Dustin Chabert in Aurora, Illinois. My vote for Film of the Year goes to Hereditary. The performances, set design, cinematography, and overall feeling of paranoia and looming dread make for a modern horror classic. But it gets my vote for the simple fact that it was the first film in my adult life to actually make me wake up in the middle of the night from a nightmare. Apparently, that final scene really did a number on my subconscious. I don't think 
the end, as we've said, is scary really at all. It's crazy how much Hereditary did not scare me. And I'm not using that as a criticism against the film. No. I'm just pointing out that for someone who really has trouble sleeping alone in the dark still in his 40s, I'm scared very easily. But Hereditary didn't do it. Well, something's wrong with you. Didn't give okay. me a nightmare, but I will say when I do get up in the middle of the night now and, you know, go get a drink of water or something, I'm checking all four corners yeah, of the ceiling. Yeah, the corners of the ceiling. Oh, absolutely. I get we'll, that. Till the day I die. <laughs> Michael Green from Dover says, Nothing in 2018 has captivated me like John Krasinski's A Quiet Place. It was intense, efficient, and purposeful, and the acting is top-notch. Krasinski hits all of the right notes. Here's a note from J.M. Bossy in Vancouver. My favorite movie this year is Blind Spotting. Co-stars David Diggs and Raphael Casal wrote the year's best script, perfectly balanced with comedy heart, tension, originality, and unpredictability. Add to the mix Diggs and Casal's abundant charisma and dexterity as performers, thematic concern with truly dire material, and two contenders for musical moment of the year, Blind Spotting has it all. Yeah, and shocker, a movie called Blind Spotting, which we have a segment on our show called Blind Spotting is a blind spot for the both of us. Well, it's also a legal issue, right? Until we well, have that settled, we can't yeah, see the film. Good point. I'm going to go with that instead of I just never made time for the movie. But I don't know anybody who doesn't like blind spotting. I'm not saying there are negative takes on it, but everybody who brings this movie up has positive things to say about it. The thing that worries me about it, and this goes back to that idea of bone-deep despair. Maybe this movie isn't that, but you have that line from J.M. there, thematic concern with truly dire material. What little I know about it, I'm sure there's humor. I'm sure there's a lot of joy in the movie. I really hope that overrides the dire material. I have to work myself up to that, Josh, at this point in the year. Is that fair? Fair. Yeah. I know. Well, I was going to say at this point in the year is the key phrase because we are watching a lot of heavy films That's right. this last month. All right. One more note here from John Newfrey. I had to vote, won't you be my neighbor? It's the movie Antidote to everything else this year has been. Our thanks to everyone who voted in that poll and for the great feedback. We've got one more important vote we need from you before we put 2018 to bed. On part one of our top 10 countdown, we announced our three finalists for the Golden Brick Award. Chloe Zhao's The Writer, Bing Lu's Minding the Gap, and Sandy Tan's Shirkers. Your vote will help decide the winner. You can do that now at filmspotting.net. The winner will be announced live at our 2018 wrap party. That event takes place Friday, January 11th. You can find more information and get tickets at filmspotting.net slash events or wbez.org slash events. Michael and Tasha, they'll be back for that live show. Unless they're picketing again. Good point. Along with the wonderful Angelica Jade Bastien from Vulture, and we're going to have some other special guest contributions. We're going to share our most moving moment of the year, our funniest moment of the year, and our scene of the year in addition to a few other categories. Some of those picks might just come from the movies you're going to hear us talk about now, our number one films of 2018. We start with a clip. How do you propose to make this investigation? Well, I've established contact and created some familiarity with the Klansmen over the phone. I'll continue in that role, but I'll need another officer, surprise, surprise, a white officer to play me when they meet face-to-face. That's my point exactly. Chief, black Ron Stallworth over the phone, white Ron Stallworth face-to-face, so there becomes a combined Ron Stallworth. Can you do that? I believe we can with the right white man. We can do anything. John David Washington there in Spike Lee's Black Klansman. It is the top pick portion of our countdown. Black Klansman, Tasha Robinson's Number one film of 2018. Tell us about it. 
You know, I think I've seen a number of Spike Lee films that I thought were bad. I don't think I've ever seen a Spike Lee film that I found uninteresting. And when he's at his best, when he's working in, for me, it's it's kind of his most formalistic modes that are the best. The, the ones that feel most serious and, and thought through and considered and like he's operating from kind of the more formalist uh, point of view that he does are the ones that kind of bring their their point across harder. And I feel like that's maybe just a personal taste thing of mine. But Black Klansman, man, this movie is just so geared towards what I appreciate about his movies. I mean, it's a hard-hitting film about the shape of racism, where it comes from, how it's perpetuated, what it looks like from the inside, what it looks like from the outside. But it's also just, it's a really entertaining story about a bunch of people infiltrating a KKK ring. One of them, uh, a black detective pretending to be a a white person through uh, the avatar of another person. It's unlikely, but it's drawn from, from a real story. It's immersive and, and fascinating, and it's just so well told. And part of that is a, a really amazing cast. John David Washington in the lead role, uh, to me, this was one of the best performances in a year, almost more marked by amazing performances than amazing films. He's such an empathetic and interesting character, but he's also funny. Uh, you can you can feel the anger boiling under everything this character does, and you can feel the way he has to tamp it down to get along in this very racist, very provocative, very dangerous world for him. He's breaking barriers. He's trying like new things in the world, and he's surrounded by men who resent him being there and resent everything he does, and it's it's fascinating. Every beat of this story, I think, is is creative and, and interesting and surprisingly fun. I had Black Klansman at number six on my list, and I, I think it was the year's best movie prank. I mean, to riff off of uh, Sorry to Bother You, it's, kind, it's Spike Lee using his white voice, right, throughout this film to expose racist nationalism as just absurdly, comically pathetic. Think about the amount of screen time here that is given to the espousing of white supremacist rhetoric, how much of it we hear, and often, as you described, Tasha, from the mouth of a black man. I mean, that makes this a reverse minstrel show in a lot of ways. So <laughs> only Spike Lee, I think, could could pull off painting the KKK in whiteface, which is essentially what he's doing here. So serious subject matter at the heart of it, absolutely. But for me, Black Klansman, first and foremost, this glorious joke. Yeah, I actually have it at number seven, but this is how good 2018 was. Any of my top seven could be my number one. Black Klansman was my number one at various points of the year. Fantastic Spike Lee closing shot. And I'm speaking of the shot, I think, that precedes the modern day footage we get from Charlottesville that I actually love that touch, that element being added to this film. But that closing shot that tells us that a battle may have been won here, but the war itself is far from over. It has two scene of the year candidates for sure, at least the Kwame Ture speech with that montage of the faces in the crowd, some of the best editing of the year. And then the birth of a nation clan ceremony cross cutting riff is electric. So I love Black Klansmen, and I'm really excited to see it as your number one of the year, Tasha. We now get to Michael Phillips and his number one film of the year. But before that, Allison Wilmore from BuzzFeed and a former co-host of Film Spotting SVU is going to help us out. Hey, guys, it's Allison of the late lamented Film Spotting SVU. My favorite film of the year is Chloe Zhao's The Rider, which is just this tender, melancholy, hopeful 
and just incredibly beautiful film that uses first-time actors really well and ties in documentary details into this fiction story that has made me sob buckets both of the times that I've seen it. It's a really incredible achievement, and I think it's the kind of movie that I'll go back to again and again. Yeah, I mean, she's got it on the money there. It's, it's a gorgeous, really distinctively skillful look at what this Lakota cowboy, Brady Jandreau, is basically playing a version of himself here. What he goes through in the South Dakota Badlands country uh, as a rodeo rider, just as a just as a human being trying to eke out a life in a part of the world that we haven't seen much on screen, even in Westerns. It's a film where I really had no access points of interest going in. I hate to announce my No, parents. I agree. You know, it's like, no, I, don't, exactly. I, I don't love Westerns. I don't, you know, as a genre, it's not my favorite genre. I don't really know anything about any of this territory or the people or even the filmmaker. But I went back and saw the documentary that brought her into the orbit of, of this this one young man, Brady Jandreau. And now I know why she said, I, I the minute I met this guy, I said, I want to build a film around him. And she knows how to make a non-professional, and people can say the same about Roma with the female lead, absolutely, that if you find the right person to build your film around, you're going to get some sort of fascinating juncture between nonfiction and narrative filmmaking. And I think this film is... Just as big, uh, you know, in the timeline is like, you know, the films like On the Bowery or The Exiles from the 50s and 60s where filmmakers were discovering what, well, is there some location of truth in between these two forms, nonfiction and, and narrative filmmaking? And can we tell a story that will stick with people? Well, if I can run into uh, conservative Tribune columnist John Cass, uh, you know, in the office today, and he says, you know my favorite film? The Rider. Thanks for that recommendation. <laughs> I mean, that's to talk about a uniter, not a divider. People just have to find it first. Yeah. So I hope they do. You mentioned Zhao and her discovery of Jandro, and that preceded this movie being made. I thought I read somewhere that she said, and this is kind of the tragedy of it, but the benefit for us as viewers, that she knew she wanted to make a movie about him, but she didn't have a story. And then it was him getting injured, which is the foundation for the story that then gave her something to turn into the film we see. Like I said, not not great for him, obviously, but did give us this wonderful piece of filmmaking. And you said it about Minding the Gap, Michael, that that was the biggest miracle, miraculous film of the year for you. For me, it's the writer. How did this movie get made? And I don't mean anything about budget or studios or anyone else involved with distribution, just the alchemy. You, you said it, the, the strange mixture of real life and fiction that makes this such a potent movie. It could have so easily, I think, been a disaster. And instead, it is truly one of the most powerful films of the year. What does it say that, that uh, I, you know, I don't give a rip about horses personally and, and, and lean on Pete and the rider just know. made me like <laughs> rethink the entire species. Strong yeah. horse here, strong horse here. I mean, I think what you see on this film that you're just not necessarily used to seeing, I mean, it, it does go back to the same place as Minding the Gap in terms of men struggling with what to do with their emotions, mm. how they're allowed to feel them, especially around each other, how they're allowed to feel them in relationship to like what to the choices they make you know Brady the character and presumably the the man playing him feels very strongly about his future as a rodeo rider and about what the rodeo means to him and he's not allowed to express his doubts he's not allowed to express his fears mm -hmm. he's not allowed to express his anything but his ambitions and we watch him throughout the film exploring those things the scenes between him and Lane Scott 
who is an actual friend of his who was injured in a rodeo and is uh, like seriously injured. seriously yeah. Yeah. seriously injured and undergoing rehabilitation. I can't remember the last time I saw that kind of of completely platonic but but deep love between two men in a film on screen and the emotion that both of them are expressing. I mean, they both approach like Lane's disability and, and the horror of his future with humor and with affection and with a lot of, of denial. And all those things are beautiful. All right, brother. Sit up for me. Look at me now, brother. Look at me. There you go. Big and tall. All right, brother. See ya. Yeah, yeah. Let me get one. Let me get one. Oh, there's my man. I love you, brother. And Zhao just knows how to shape these these dialogue scenes in a way that just tailors them so easily to how the real conversations must have felt and sounded like. Even if they were a little tidied up or neatened up just for the purposes of the drama, they do not feel false for a second. Well, and you said, Michael, what's your in for this movie? At the core of it, it's a movie about someone realizing that the one thing they can do, the one thing they're capable of has now been taken away from them. What's your purpose now? What do you do when that happens? If you're a horse, we see this in the movie, you just get shot and you're put out of your misery. If you're a man like Brady Jandro, who, as you said so astutely, Tasha, can't express his emotions, how do you process that? That's what this whole film is. And I think, again, whether we actually have any direct relationship to this world or not, we can understand that predicament. So the writer had a chance, it looks like, of being the one film that was on all of our Top 10 list. I had it at number 11. You really oh, so close. You so ruined close. it. Well, we got to get together and do uh, some more, you know, organizing okay. well, of this. Well, this is a rare case where you have a number one film of the year, Josh, that is on my top 10. Yes. It's do my I get to do eight. my number one now? I'm you, so excited You about get this. to do it, but you have to do it all with a bark. <laughs> that would not be very interesting for very long. Sorry. This is really special for me. I mean, my favorite working filmmaker putting out what I believe is one of his best films Therefore, a chance for me to put it at number one. So, yes, believe it or not, the last time I had a Wes Anderson film at number one in a given year was in 1998 for Rushmore. Probably almost all of his, except maybe Darjeeling Limited, made my top tens, but I'm going with Isle of Dogs at number one. Mm -hmm. Why? What's so special about it? I could go on for hours about how it's so funny in so many different ways. I mean, the script, the visuals, the vocal performances. How about the fact that this is also an existential meditation on the nature of free will, but with dogs? Or maybe because it's possibly the most biting piece of political satire we got last year, one that I think becomes even more incisive every time the White House finds a new way to monger fear, to use terminology from the movie. But let me set those things aside. Just point out something that I don't think has been discussed nearly enough. Isle of Dogs is a masterpiece of stop motion animation. I mean, I'm not the foremost authority on stop motion, but I do really love the art form. I hold dear the work of, you know, Ray Harryhausen, Rankin and Bass, Tim Burton, Henry Selleck is a genius, the folks of Laika, you know, so many others. I can't say I've ever seen anything like what the team of animators behind Isle of Dogs have created here. The detail, the depth, the way the camera moves among these spaces, um, you're not watching a boundaried play space, which is how I think of a lot of stop motion. It's as if this world, the one we know, has been transformed by everything that they've created here. So 
even if Isle of Dogs wasn't also the funniest and most moving retort to immigration paranoia of the year, I'd have to put it at number one just for its visual craft alone. So uh, you, you guys are just like an old married couple. You're getting a little more alike as you get older. Maybe together. so. You know, here you, suddenly you both put it on your He nailed head. it too. Everything he said about it is correct. Yeah, well, except Our dogs not, look like each other too, yeah, right, Michael. Yeah. That's the worst part. It's correct, but in, in a fundamentally incorrect way, okay. I think. Uh, no, do you I, dislike no, I, this film? No, I like it okay. I, oh, I do. I geez. like it pretty well. I don't think it's half the film that something like Grand Budapest Hotel was, for You example. love Grand Budapest Hotel so much, yeah. which I'm grateful for yeah but you don't have to negate everything else in light of that i, I, I think the film was pretty good i the will, year was better I than pretty good Josh. we'll take it michael <laughs> thank you for that ringing endorsement i'm honestly in the same boat i enjoyed it i enjoyed the brian cranston dogs arc immensely and then just there's so much of of the rest of that film i do feel like it maybe got a little lost you know it got lost under the controversy that we're not talking about it got lost under just kind of beginning of the year stuff it got lost under like wes anderson's past filmography and uh, it just it seems like it it got weirdly misplaced and yeah, i feel I'd like i want to go see it again outside of of the realm of all of that and just be able to appreciate well it and the it thing is. you're talking about that we're not talking about is that whether or not whether or not it's sort of inherently a little bit a little bit patronizing or culturally insensitive and in that it's yeah. kind, of, kind of like colonizing white anglo filmmaker treating japanese characters like americans which i will say we talked about you know in depth on the show and and i i glad those questions were asked um, and I appreciate those critiques. I do think, you know, we offered some counters to that on the show. And the more I watch it and the further we get away from that initial alarmed response, uh, I find that those are a little less applicable to what's really going on in the film. I will stand up for you a little bit, Josh, and say what I said during our review, which is the line where that whole movie really clicked with me. And in a way that a lot of Wes Anderson films don't, where I appreciate the artistry of it, but they don't really kind of hit me on an emotional level, nor do they really move me to think about anything wider, like the political elements, which are such a part of this film. It's the moment where a character says, who are we and who do we want to be? Notably I think in that, English. In English. And that, that line, though, is so crucial to the year 2018, but also to the year in cinema, I think. You can point to a lot of the films we've talked about, but also some films that we haven't talked about, like Won't You Be My Neighbor, the Mr. Rogers documentary, Paddington 2, I think, as well, could fit into this Which I paradigm. Loved. I love. Both very good films, but the movie really... It made me think about that actually in the same way a movie like First Reformed even makes you think about kind of what you stand for and what you are going to accept responsibility for. So for me, Isle of Dogs really was one of the best films of the year. Sorry, Tasha. I know we were agreeing with each other until I brought up First Reformed. I, I was going to say, uh, what, what I stand for is not liking that film. <laughs> <laughs> and that brings us to my number one film of 2018. And it's actually the movie we just discussed last week on the show. Barry Jenkins, If Beale Street Could Talk, set in Harlem in the early 1970s, really at its core a love story about Tish, a 19-year-old who becomes pregnant, who is in a relationship with Fani, and he has been sent to jail, is awaiting trial for a crime everyone is sure he didn't actually commit. For me, it's the most beautiful film I saw in 2018, frame by frame, the one I most enjoyed looking at, but also the most tender and romantic, despite all the injustices our central couple suffers. It kind of all unfolds like a memory using that flashback technique, and it's really from Tish's perspective. She's our narrator and our guide. The whole film just glides gorgeously, and glide might 
be the wrong word to use there because it suggests a swiftness that Beale Street doesn't have, which is also what I love about it. The patience, the time it takes in every scene, almost like Tish looking back on it is drawing out the memory to relive and relish these moments of happiness together. Josh, a couple listeners called us out for our review, how we could talk about the movie for as long as we did and not mention Regina King who is the wonderful actress who plays Tish's mother in the film. I'm going to remedy that now. And this speaks to another example of the patience I so appreciate in this movie. Everyone in Beale Street gets at least one extended scene to reveal themselves, to expose their vulnerability, their artistry, their individuality. And they're mostly silent scenes. I think about Fani working on his sculpture with the smoke surrounding him, Brian Tyree Henry's, Daniel, who has that crushing monologue about prison life, and it's notable for the power of his words, but just as powerful is the weariness on Henry's face and the way Barry Jenkins lingers on it. For Regina King, it's that mirror scene in Puerto Rico. She's getting dressed. She's getting ready for battle, essentially, when the stakes of the battle are a man's freedom, they're her daughter's happiness, justice prevailing. All of this is on her shoulders as she's about to head out to meet with someone that she has to confront and she knows it could go terribly and she puts her wig on and the lipstick and then we get one cut it's all an unbroken take until it cuts to a straight on shot as she makes adjustments to the wig and she's looking right at the camera and we watch her shake her head and remove it and let her natural hair flow and regina king just so gracefully externalizes that interior fear it's as if only in that moment when the wig goes on and the lipstick goes on, that the full weight of what she's about to do hits her. And what's at stake if she fails? The realization that maybe she isn't equipped for it. I touched on as well my favorite sequence in the movie is that 15-minute meeting of the families that happens early on when the announcement of her pregnancy, the news is broken to the other family. If that was the entire movie, Beale Street still might be my number one film of 2018. <laughs> That's so much I loved it. And I talked about Tayana Paris in that scene, the sister who stands up for Tish. But King is the mother. She's the protector of all the women in that scene. When there's a moment of violence, she kicks the men out. She locks the door in case they might actually think to come back. But she's a protector first and foremost of her daughter. And you've got a fierce ingenue Ellis as Mrs. Hunt, the the opposing mother. And I love the line where one of the, the sisters says, she's got a weak heart. And King whips back, she's got a weak head. <laughs> <laughs> and there are just so many complex layers of pain and disconnection in that sequence between these two families over religion, over class, education, gender roles. You just can't solve any of this over cognac and ice cream sodas. And the movie shows us that love, no matter how true and pure, isn't always going to be enough to overcome all that unfairness and corruption in society. But I think Beale Street says it's the only hope that we have. I haven't looked at every top 10 list that's been out yet this year, but I tend to see Beale Street pop up only as kind of an honorable mention, and I know it only made one of the other lists here in the room. I'm not sure why I swoon for it so much more than others seem to. Perhaps the expressionistic approach kind of clashing with the harshness of the circumstances, but that worked for me. The whole film just moved me and devastated me. I, I'm eager to see it a second time, and I, I have to see it a second time before writing the full review, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure if the style of it which really artfully complements Baldwin's lyric prose style. I'm not sure it all quite manages to feel like real life 
here and now in the 70s. I mean, we're not going for gritty faux documentary realism here. Mm-hmm. This is not Barry Jenkins as a filmmaker, nor should it be. But it's a question I have that I, I can only answer by seeing a film I very much admired and and every single role impeccably cast. Uh, need to see it a second time. And yeah. that's, it's also the best musical score of the year, I think. Oh, Agreed. absolutely. Yeah. Nicholas Bertels, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, uh, unlike anything else I've heard lately. The Regina King moment for me, Adam, is it comes earlier and it's smaller when Tish is getting the courage to tell her that she's yes. pregnant and she just calls her mother's name. And you can see on Regina King's face, she knows what she's she about. Knows. She knows what she's about to tell her. Yep. But um, yeah, it, it almost made my list. I think I've got it somewhere um, about 14. Tasha, though, you're, you got it at number 10, so it made your top 10. I do have it at number 10. If a lusher movie was made this year, I definitely did not see it. <laughs> I think that's the word I use seven times in our review. <laughs> Gosh, I mean, this movie feels like being wrapped in a warm blanket. And it's, it I does. mean, it, it, there's a lot of, of hard, harsh material in it. Once again, we have another movie of 2018 that confronts racism, systemic racism, in a an overt, unashamed way. And it like explores what it feels like, what the black experience can feel like. But at the same time, there's so much private space in this movie. There's so much time away from from the world and what it does to the the people in this film. And you get to see what they're like in their private life. So many of the films that contended with racism this year made that kind of the, the be all and end all of the character. And one of the things about Beale Street that fascinated me is it doesn't shy away from that. But at the same time, seeing the characters like alone in private and how they deal with these quotidian things like mm-hmm. a pregnancy, how Barry Jenkins in particular deals with a sex scene, which, boy, is he with this and Moonlight both. He's going to some places that are not profoundly graphic, but are so warm and erotic that approach uh, the like the beauty of black skin mm-hmm. as a cinematographic boon, I guess. Mm. I feel like at the heart, this movie is about the difference between people in public and private and about how many different identities uh, people have to have when they're living in a society that does not let them be themselves in public, that will judge them harshly for things that they are not and are in no way putting forth in the world. And by, by constantly shifting between this is who I am with my family, this is who I am with my lover, this is who I am traveling alone, this is who I am confronting a stranger, this is who I am confronting authority. Yes. Through all of these different characters, you get such a huge and rich experience of who all of these individual people are. And as you say, the film takes time to explore enough of who they are that they matter like each of these confrontations or collaborations matter in a whole new way because we know these characters it's just it's a really rich experience well on that very eloquent note from tasha we end our top 10 films of 2018 countdown you can find all of our picks at filmspotting.net just click on lists also we encourage you to send your picks or any other comments about the show to feedback at filmspotting.net you can also find us on facebook and twitter i'm at filmspotting josh is at larson on film tasha and michael how do you feel about that you good did you I get it out? Good, yeah, you know was, <laughs> everything you felt about the year in cinema. Year. What did you I want to here's what I want to do. I want to put all the titles we mentioned 
in, in these two episodes okay. and just put them in uh, – just tell them to Netflix and see what kind of stupid algorithm spits back the wrong recommendations. <laughs> you might <Right>. like next. <laughs> yeah, when Josh gives you Hale County this morning, this evening and game night back to back, you might, you might break Netflix. Yeah, I'll get – Mikhail's Navy joins the Air Force. You know, <laughs> Tasha and Michael, this was one of my thrills of the movie going year as always. Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune. Where can people find your work? Chicagotribune.com slash movies. And – he likes to tweet every now and again at yeah, Phillips, Phillips Tribune. Tribune. Yeah. Tasha, what about you? I like to tweet a lot more than every now and again at Tasha Robinson. You can find my writing at TheVerge.com, and you can find me and my AV Club buddies, including Scott, I am so wrong, Tobias, <laughs> <laughs> Keith Phipps, and Genevieve Kosky over at The Next Picture Show, part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Really, guys, thanks a lot. This is also always a highlight of the movie year for me as well. If this massive show was not enough for you, head over to filmspotting.net where you can find 13 plus years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. And that's where you can vote in the current film spotting poll. What film should win the 2018 Golden Brick Award? This poll has real stakes, people. I mean, this will get factored into the ultimate award. Your vote, winner. listeners, counts just as much as Josh's. Well, wait Almost a as much wait as mine. It's I'm sorry, like I that. shouldn't have said that. <laughs> Let's move on. If you haven't already, please check out our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. You know who's on that? Who's great on that? Tasha Robinson. You can find it in iTunes or through your preferred podcast app. So after cramming in all of these films and thinking about these movies and recording this whopping two-part show, we're going to take a couple weeks off. We hope you won't begrudge us that, especially as we have a huge live yeah, we'll event ju- We'll ahead. just be preparing That's for true. another mass We're going to be combing through these movies. And you know what? I'm going to throw it out right now to everybody. We could use your help remembering some of the best oh, yeah. scenes of the year. The categories, again, are best opening scene, funniest moment, moving moment, music moment, and scene of the year. You if got you've it. got any picks... Please do send them our way, feedback at filmspotting.net. So while we're gone, our radio audience anyway is going to get a couple of our favorite 2018 episodes. And Josh, I don't know if you've thought about this at all. I've thought about it because Sam and I, our producer, have talked about it. And the two I suggested were rerunning the Ethan Hawke interview, one of the highlights for me this year, and then that Dave Chen top five we did for our 700th episode on that anniversary. We reflected on the top five things we have learned from podcasting about movies. Yeah, we got a lot of good feedback on that one, so that makes sense for sure. Now, if listeners, again, want to help contribute to this show, what were your favorite film spotting episodes? We might just use your pick in one of these film spotting revisiteds you're going to hear over the next couple of weeks. So we would love to hear from you, and no, it doesn't just have to be about singing our praises. If there was a particular segment or moment from the year in film spotting, we would appreciate you sending that our way. Again, feedback at filmspotting.net. And we do hope to see you on January 11th for the 2018 Rap Party Live. If we don't, you can hear that live show the weekend of January 18th. One last time, tickets at filmspotting.net slash events or wbez.org slash events. If you've never been to a film spotting live show before, they're a good time. Yeah. We have a good time. We the crowd always seems do. entertained. It takes a little while for me to have a good time. That's like true. Maybe maybe 30 minutes in, I'm yeah. finally having a good time. It's going to be a good show. We promise. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candice Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. If you enjoyed this show, please do give us a rating 
rating or a review on iTunes so we can reach a few new listeners. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.